So at the tender age of, of uh, nine, I definitely was not able to get into any R-rated movie. But my sister, five years older than me, had acquired the soundtrack. And I was just like, what is this sorcery? Groovy. Boom! Podcast! Hello, and welcome to Film Podcast with Brian Stumpf and Joe Friend. Here you'll find some bits and bobs of Hollywood ephemera as we take a deep dive on a specific topic. I'm your host, Joe Friend, award-winning screenwriter, musician, pedantic man about town, and general polymath, accompanied by my friend and cohort, a renowned independent film producer, writer, and director, Brian Stumpf. Is that fucking Brian Stumpf in here? That's right, folks. We're doing Beverly Hills Cop. Brian, say hello. Hey, this is Brian Stump coming to you from my home office deep in the Rust Belt, which is deep in the Northeast. So you guessed it. The windows are sealed shut. The curtains are open and the heat is on. Heat is Well, Brian, before we get started, of course, we have to see if you're worthy of diving in on today's endeavor with a little bit of trivia. Because it's time for Stump the Stump. Stump the Stump. Brian, who produced Beverly Hills Cup? Uh, that would be uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer. That's right. Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the power duo, <laughs> responsible for many other movies. How much does Axel Foley want for the load of cigarettes? Uh, 5000 That's right. <laughs> and they try to lowball him with 2000 to which he later replies that if he accepted $2,000, they would know he was a cop. <laughs> Smart guy. He prefers uh, King Size Ken. What song plays during the truck chase? Neutron Dance, I believe, right? By... By... Oh, no. I think that would have to be the Pointer Sisters. That's right. Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters. That was, uh, I think that song went number one that year, and we will backfill it with the other. Nota del editor. Neutron Dance reached number six on the Hot 100 charts, February 16th, 1985. Number one that year, Careless Whisper, featuring George Michael. What is the company that owns the cab that is destroyed by the 18-wheeler? <laughs> Detroit Omni Consumer Products? I have no idea. I didn't get that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice callback to RoboCop, but that would be Checker. Checker Cab Company. We're going to get into this in a second, but I just, the moment of glee on the truck driver's face as he's smashing the trucks is priceless. (laughs) All right, Brian, what is the brand of cigarettes that Axel Foley is trying to sell illegally? Uh, Wow, you are stumping the stump. Uh, They're not Parliament. They're not Funkadelic. I don't know. What would it be? Lucky Strike. Lucky Strike. Yeah. The song, Axel Foley, is composed by whom? Uh, That would be uh, straight out of Munich, Harold Faltemeyer. That is correct. If our faithful listeners have a chance to go back and watch the music video, please, please check that out. Okay, here we go, Brian. These are the last two questions to see if you're worthy. And right now, you're having about a 90%, so you're doing very well. (laughs) But I've I've gone deep on you, Brian, and I'm trying to really, really make this difficult for you. Or it's going deep on me. What kind of car is parked outside of Victor's house when Axel Foley is having his picnic. Axel Foley is having his picnic. I'm picnicking. This is like uh, a I'm picnic. I'm just going to guess uh, Lamborghini or a Ferrari. A DeLorean. A DeLorean. Oh, I should have guessed that. Yeah, I noticed that when I was watching it. I was like, wait, that's a DeLorean. <laughs> it's just sitting there, sitting there curbside, not behind the gate, by the way, just someone's streetcar. Okay, Prince, the legendary Prince, had something to do with this movie. What is it? I think that was the song playing at, as the chief calls it, the striptease establishment. Uh, Nasty. Didn't he write Nasty for that scene? 
He wrote Nasty Girl, and he formed the band Vanity Six to perform that song. All right, Brian, you've won. Oh, yeah. You've won. You get to continue, but I'm asking uh, permission from you to take first chair and give me first solo, because I have (laughs) just got to say that we're talking about our younger selves and how this movie influenced us. I think I grew up in a household where we assumed that people who were actors and people who were famous were just discovered in supermarkets. It was never explained that, oh, you could actually study this and become a writer or an actor or a director. So it was always just like, oh man, when I saw Beverly Hills Cop for the first time, first of all, the beginning, the movie is just, it starts completely silent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also the intro to the song as well, which I'm sure you'll cover given that you brought it up already. Um, So I I won't dish that out, but it's just completely silent. And we're looking at just this hazy industrial city that hopefully some future corporation will develop a robotic cop that will come clean it up. But for now, it's a decaying Detroit. And then we hear some city sounds. <laughs> Hang on, time out. My cat's literally scratching in the litter box. <laughs> yeah, I was I was noticing. It was like uh it was like one of those news bloopers where <laughs> this cat was like starting to come in behind you, starting to lick its ass. And she's in her rambunctious state of the day, and every word I utter she thinks is for her. You're giving me suspense. Are you gonna start breaking into Axel F or he does on or Okay. The movie starts completely silent. You know, you see a dilapidated Detroit in the background. You hear some city sounds. And you hear just the first first inklings of a song, but we don't quite know what it is. cameos, including on Miami Vice. You know, he was the airplane pilot in Smuggler's Blues, which also used that song. But we have scenes of an industrial Detroit, but then it was just city scenes. It's just regular city life. I don't think these people knew that they were being filmed, but it was just midsummer in, in a city that's had socioeconomic issues at the time. I think all movies sh- should start this way. You know, it's just playing this awesome song. You're just getting a look at the city. It's got really got nothing to do with the movie, but it just really sets the stage for the next scene. Oh, and shit, by the way, during the intro, I swear that they show the house that's featured as Drexel's house from the movie True Romance. <laughs> I'm curious if Quentin Tarantino did a callback homage to Beverly Hills Cop by using the facade of the same house as uh, Drexel the Pimp's house from, from True Romance. Or would it, it would have been Tony Scott, I guess. Tony Scott, director of Beverly Hills Cop 2, actually. Oh, maybe that's it. So the same house. <laughs> We're going to go with the Tony Scott. The same house as Drexel the Pimp's house <laughs> featured a full decade later is in the movie Beverly Hills Cop. The suspense is killing And then anyway. Oh, I I thought you were going to play something for me. Uh, no, I'm done with that. I just wanted to give you that. All, all movies should start that way. <laughs> There's nothing to play. I was thinking growing up, that was the theme music to play. If you had any kind of synthesizer, Casio, anything around. You're talking about the Axel Foley theme? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, but that doesn't start at that moment. You don't get the Axel Foley theme until he's sneaking around yeah. Detroit. I'm sorry, until he's sneaking around the warehouse in Beverly Hills. Like, and that, and then it persists throughout the movie. But he doesn't get his heroic theme music until he decides to take the hero's journey. But let's pause for a moment to talk about the soundtrack because actually that that was the gateway to this whole movie for me. I mean, let's take us back. One of the questions I thought you were going to ask me was what year did this come out? And Young Brian was at the tender age of nine, 1984. So at the tender age of, of nine, I definitely was not able to get into any R-rated movie. But my sister, five years older than me, had acquired the soundtrack. And I was just like, what is this sorcery? I mean, when I first heard it, I was like, this is this is definitely a movie I gotta see. It was my first introduction to a movie that might actually be cool. A lot of people uh, like to put that moniker on various 80s movies. Number one is usually Top Gun, but I always felt like the number one cool movie of the 80s. Just 
I was well, first time I saw it, I was like, I think I'm looking at something cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, once if you look at the beginning scenes, sorry, the beginning character scenes where you first meet Axel Foley uh, as an undercover seller of illicit goods, <laughs> in this case, cigarettes with the federal tax stamp on it that they could buy, uh, that he was trying to sell to um, what I assume were some lower ranking mafia members. <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't dealing with any Johnny Bananas there. And then you have an awesome, you have an awesome car chase. Yeah. So the local cops intercede and then suddenly, and I think that was the first time I saw a, a, a piggybacked 18 wheeler. Like, I just didn't know those things existed, uh, on a, particularly on my tiny East Coast Philadelphia roads that were used to horses and wagons and just grew up from there. Yeah. There's no way that this giant truck could exist. But you just had the scene where it's like cops show up. He just slowly wraps his hands around the chains. He knows it's going to go south very quickly. The one dude's like, he got identification. And the one guy just looks at him and he's like, nope, I'm just going to run. Yeah. And, the guy, and the guy starts the truck up and suddenly you have this amazing car chase, which I think is the hallmark of many Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer films but just fantastic. So yeah, the younger 1984 version of myself was very, very suddenly interested in this movie where they're committing wanton destruction down the street and obliterating any vehicle in its path. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. That was the first movie. Maybe this goes along with uh, how I thought it was cool. It was the first movie that introduced me to wanton destruction as comedy, just mayhem being just part of the comedy. We see it more uh, later. A lot of Seth Meyers or Seth Seth, uh, Rogen movies uh, have a lot of wanton destruction. There's this one movie, I, as you know, Joe Friend, I am very close to the Canadian border, practically on the Canadian border. There's this one movie called Fubar Balls to the Wall that is popular on this end of the spectrum of the Canadian American spectrum. And uh, if you want an example of wanton mayhem destruction, then as comedy, then that is one of the quintessential examples. So I recommend that. I, I think, I don't know if the Seth Rogen thing is a fair comparison because all his movies are goofy. This was a serious movie. Um, it just had a lot of what you know, we would call your your average Joe language, scenarios, crime, and it's the perfect example of your fish out of water movie. We're not quite there yet, so let's get to that point. And I think the very first line from the police after the car chase is, oh, Foley, we should have known it was you. We knew it was going to set the stage, because then he gets back to the police station and he, he runs into... Inspector Todd? No, what was, what's Paul, what's, Reiser? what's Paul Reiser's character's name? Jeffrey. So he gets back to the police station and he runs into Jeffrey, and Reiser's aping him, trying to, like, get a rise out of him. We can see that Riser's the, uh, sorry, that Jeffrey is the character that kind of looks up to this rogue Axel Foley. So we know that he's <laughs> respected uh, and well-known, but we also know that he has antics. Uh, and then the, the first line is just, just grizzled Inspector Todd, or <laughs> is it Chief, sorry, it's Chief Inspector Todd, played by uh, Gilbert R. Hill, comes in and says, is that, is that fucking that Foley in here? here? And then we just know this uh, is going to be <laughs> a gritty movie, and this is how they do business in Detroit. So immediately we know what kind of movie this is going to be, and then after leaving the police station, the first person that Axel Foley interacts with is a one of his best friends who is a criminal with a satchel full of uh, illegal bear bonds who broke into his house. And then the only thing that they do is they go out to the bars and get hammered and then it's on. Mikey gets whacked. There's a lot of quintessential 80s moments going on this screenplay, against all odds, to reference another movie, but against all odds, this movie uh, was actually nominated for best screenplay. In some ways, I think that is that is perfect because there's a lot of economy in those first first 15 minutes. There's exceptional economy where you get all the beats that you need. Yeah. You know why he has to go to L.A. You know the person he has to meet when he gets to L.A. You know his motivations. All within those first 15 minutes, your sympathies lies with lie with him. Also, quintessential 80s moment. I mean, how 
eighties was, I think where we got the cranky police police chief. Yeah. That was like all throughout the eighties was the cranky police chief. And inspector Todd was like, perfect. He was like the model to follow. When was in the heat of the night? We get a lot of fish out of water in the eighties. Uh, and Die Hard, actually, if you think about it, is definitely a fish out of the water. We see a lot of movies in the eighties where basically someone from the West or from the East coast, uh, a cop for Die Hard, whether it's Beverly Hills cop, East coast cop coming to LA basically get some shit done the la uh, police are there to kind of help out but you gotta get a northeaster northeaster in there to kind of help get things solved and you know break some rules and kind of get things squared away so i appreciate personally i appreciate that you know i think that's a good uh, i mean as joe friend knows uh me being in la was definitely a fish out of water i rolled into town with my dad's uh, pickup truck because my tacoma was a little bit too much of a gas guzzler so uh drove into town with my uh, dad's uh pickup truck and still with the felt smell of cured clover on it if you would and uh <laughs> <laughs> coming from the farmlands of northeast but uh yeah so anyways getting back to the 80s uh quintessential yeah the police chief the fish out of water bearer bonds i mean just like die hard bearer bonds. i actually i actually looked that up because <laughs> i wanted to understand what was the prevalence of bearer bond thefts and there actually weren't many, but there was a very publicized. And again, we have to go back to which is cart and which is horse and whether or not art imitates life. But the bearer bond crimes actually happened after Beverly Hills Cop, after Die Hard. It's great. You know, you did mention the tropes of the grizzled police captain. And, you know, I think that started um, with some of the police serials. You know, I brought up In the Heat of the Night, which was in, I believe, the late 60s, but then turned into a TV show. But then you had also had Hill Street Blues, mm -hmm. which I think started in 1981. And that was, I think that was the first look at this is a, this is more of a serious police periodical, but the, but you're correct. The writing was amazing. And it's interesting to say that. And then look at the fact that one, it wasn't written for Eddie Murphy. And then two, it wasn't really a completed script when they started filming. Uh, so the fact that they baked this in and they were able to, you know, at every level of production from pre-production to the actual acting and then to final cut at the end and post-production stitched together all of those beats so effectively. <laughs> I don't think there's, I don't think there's wasted footage in there to your point um and just getting back to the fact that it wasn't written for eddie murphy you know i wouldn't if, if this movie was written for the if this movie was acted by the person it was written for it would have fucking sucked <laughs> yeah there therein lies my befuddlement if you look at the movie this person chose to do instead yeah. that movie sucked it was a terrible <laughs> weird movie in which we have to give it a, a, a brief callback but here let's let's let me put a pin in that because yeah that's that's the lore that i was hoping to go into a little bit well yeah therein lies my befuddlement with an oscar nomination for best screenplay because yes the first 15 minutes are so economical it's kind of like when you hear about an oscar nomination for uh Sasha Baron Cohen movie. I mean, there, there was definitely a bunch of improv there. So it's like, are the is the Academy appreciating how they're coming up with writing on the fly? But then if they do that, I mean, who do they give credit for? I mean, is it the improv improvisers? I mean, who exactly is coming up with the improv lines? So it's interesting. Yeah, it's just like, you know, you clearly you wonder who deserves the credit and whether, you know, you, you try to figure out what the metrics are for what deserves an Oscar nomination for best screenplay. So, so that was interesting. 
interesting. I think it did win the one and only award that the business types of Hollywood truly give a shit about, which was it definitely <laughs> won best box office, both domestic and international that year. I think it was two uh, under uh, Temple of Doom. Nope, but Temple of Doom had one of the finest beginnings of any movie as well. This Emperor Nirahachi is a really small guy. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the lore of how this all got started, though, I mean, we're talking about how there's a lot of improv uh, involved and it was kind of like a, it was it became a totally different script once the start became became involved. There are some moments where I want to talk about the writing, some clearly good writing by the screenwriter, the the accredited screenwriter, and also some clearly good moments by the director, Martin Brest. But this is clearly a movie in which I think the whole movie was built in and around Eddie Murphy. Yeah. This is one of those movies where it's it clearly the star is kind of like the whole creator of the entire movie. It cemented him as a box office film star and it enabled him to go off and make uh, well, the number of sequels for this, but as well as many other uh, great movies at the time. Um, and then it also has given him cachet uh, throughout his entire career, <laughs> which he's chosen to jump back in. There's always been this announcement or this little rumor turning into announcements of Beverly Hills Cop 4. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, he just did Coming to America mm-hmm. and we're seeing lots of sequels that are done decades after they actually were you know, left off. Yeah. Who was it for? Who was it for originally? Uh, going back to why this whole movie uh, became something different when Eddie Murphy became involved was this was a, initially a vehicle for a young Mr. Sylvester Aloysius Stallone. And uh, what's funny about that is he uh, became, he kind of became disgruntled. And actually I did a little research. The producers were not sure about uh, having Stallone and they were trying to find ways to kind of make a separation between Stallone and Beverly Hills Cop because Stallone was unsure about it. He was finding his own reasons to not be happy about it. He was thinking his persona was not going to be going to fit well with uh, how the story was laying out. He didn't think they would buy him as a fish out of water, unable to take care of things in uh, Beverly Hills, like having to like deal with a different kind of culture. So, but also the producers uh, were looking for a way to make this uh, separation clean. How'd they get him out of the way? The rumor is Jerry Bruckheimer played to Stallone's ego by saying that there was this European uh, medical trial in which they were experimenting with a super erectile uh, medication and they wanted to kind of take some sort of samples from the, uh, I guess, the macho men (laughs) of the 80s from the United States. And so, and he left the country briefly. And in that time, that's when they brought in Eddie Murphy. So you're saying there wasn't very stiff competition for this (laughs) role. (laughs) You know, I understand that's a rumor and it might be a little of a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) All right, moving off. So um, Stallone instead went on to make Cobra. And if you've ever seen that movie, it's basically like this strange weird ego trip of (laughs) faux machoism. There's literally a scene where there's the cult of axe murdering serial killers clinking their axes together in unison (laughs) in like some some like boiler room or steel mill or something and it's like you know what serial killers are loners and they don't get together and clink their axes together in a synchronized dance. How do you know this so well? So this movie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah well uh... the car was awesome because he literally had a Shelby Cobra but I'm hoping uh was a uh recreation by the way best scene with cutting your pizza with scissors of course um best tagline very good tagline uh crime is the disease and he's the cure it's also a nod to some of those i feel like there was some either there was an 80s trope about the guy's name uh his, his last name is really cobretti but 
he goes by the nickname Cobra. And I feel like, yeah. I feel like there's other movies where there's a character who has this kind of Italian or whatever name. And the nickname is actually the title of the movie. Okay. Mikey gets killed. Mikey Tendino gets killed. Oh, yeah. After Eddie Murphy gets knocked out. Now it's personal. So Mr. Murphy takes his vacation. If we can uh, point out a young Brian moment. So we talked about young Brian uh, just knowing about the soundtrack, not having seen the movie yet. And by the way, let me just do a quick aside before I talk about Mikey's death. Back in the 80s, in my hometown, it was very difficult if you were if you did not have a guardian to get an R-rated movie. I don't know why, but they were strict at my local Cinemaplex. And so I wanted to, totally separate movie, but uh, I wanted to see Total Recall. I went with my sister to see Total Recall. I was hoping to get into this R-rated movie. I had just seen RoboCop, and I really was hankering to see this new Verhoeven movie, R-rated, just like Beverly Hills Cop, R-rated. I can't get in to see it. But we came up with this clever ruse, we thought, where I would say, I want to see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And of course, I had seen it already. So so uh, I just tell him that, thinking that this will be easy. I'll just slip in through the curtain and get in to see Total Recall. And so uh, my sister and I go along with it, and we uh, go get our tickets for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and and then we start heading for the theater and I'm like making a beeline for Total Recall. And then the ticket taker actually chased us and, and yelled, you can't go in there. You can't go in there. And I was like, I can't believe they are so hard up about having this young, un- impressionable young man see a movie that was uh, R-rated. And so they actually escorted us into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I had to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for a second time. I remember being so sad and thinking to myself, oh, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. Brian, why do we scream at each other? (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles suck. (laughs) The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles television cartoon sucked. And that was only because (laughs) I had older siblings with uh, renegade boyfriends who (laughs) enjoyed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle graphic novels and comic books, which were way edgier. So I like those. And once I saw those goofy uh, styrofoam (laughs) green turtles in the movie, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, the... uh yeah, edgier. Anyway, I think every every young boy on Earth wanted to see Total Recall just after watching the preview. Yeah. They showed the face coming off him at the Mars Customs. They showed the face coming <laughs> off Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger. And you were like, yeah, I got to see this. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, Mikey's death. Mikey's death. All right. But this is about Beverly Hills Cop, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we love your tangents, by the way. But Mikey's death, I mean... It- it's kind of uh, comes full circle because as I think we've talked about this season, RoboCop and Total Recall as well, were both uh, extremely gory. But uh, Mikey's death was still uh, a very brutal moment for uh, young Brian when he saw it. Because if you think about it, I mean, this is one of those director choices that is uh, significant. First of all, there's no blood. Uh, there's no blood, uh, even though there's two gunshots. The director kind of very coldly makes sure that it's a wide shot. He kind of makes sure it's down the hall and it's just quiet. You see, basically, you see him drop to the floor. It was dehumanizing. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's uh, to the back of the head, point blank. I don't know. that. I think it was just the set above it. It was bloodless, but just the way the director chose to have that wide shot. It was just brutal. Still to this day, I, I I feel like that's the most brutal, bloodless uh, killing of someone uh, on film. I agree. So Mikey gets killed. Now it's personal. Axel Foley goes out to Beverly Hills and he's driving down the street and he's laughing in his signature laugh <laughs> at the goofballs that he sees. People have said that I actually uh, have a similar laugh. Maybe that's where I got it. Most likely because these were your formative years. <laughs> 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 Ha 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 ha!
Jesus Christ. <laughs> he almost gave me a heart attack. Yeah. You know, I love when Jenny uh, makes fun of his laugh, but I have to go back to the Beverly Hills street scenes. He really laughs that there's these two guys wearing like matching, but inverted Michael Jackson outfits. One guy had like yeah. black leather with red trim and the other guy had red leather, black trim. He's <laughs> laughing at this, but later on, Eddie Murphy goes to wear both of those outfits in Delirious yeah. and Raw, his uh, stand-up comedy special. Anyway, he gets out there. His first stop is to secure himself some lodging. He stops outside what is now the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Uh, I've actually been lucky enough to stay there <laughs> and had a blast while staying there. But then they had to uh, move the interiors of those shots to the Millennium mm-hmm. Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA. So it's pretty funny. You know, they stop outside the Beverly Wilshire. If you're familiar with the area, uh, Rodeo Drive is like directly across the street, the first entrance into the elevated mall, uh, outdoor mall right there. But then every other scene where he's pulling away from the hotel, it's like completely different. It's like in the middle of downtown LA. It's a little dilapidated. You're like, you know, they did a little switcheroo on you. Um, so that was interesting. Then he stops at the art gallery to find Jenny Summer played by uh, Lisa Ilbacher. And he goes in and he meets Sarge. How are you doing today? Hi. I'm fine. My name is Sarge. And how can I help you? <laughs> played by uh, Bronson Pinchot, who went on to you know turn this role into an actual uh, character for a television uh, show, uh, Perfect Strangers. <laughs> but there's a funny thing here. In the art gallery, there's a dining table that features mannequin heads w- with chains tied to a, a butler, and they're, and they're all rotating. It's by the famed artist Hollis Benton. Now, recently in Los Angeles, Aaron Moulton hosted an art gallery installation dedicated to Hollis Benton. There's only one problem here. What's that? Hollis Benton is a hoax. He made it up. Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important space. All that artwork was just props. It wasn't real art at all. But they had an entire show in Los Angeles based on the artwork featured in Beverly Hills Cop uh, Art Gallery, which was pretty funny. What a whimsical tangent. I just want to back up a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen uh, even before he meets uh, Bronson Pinchot, Serge, with a lineman twist. There's a very key uh, defenestration, of course. Power up! Which is hilarious because it's an introduction to the L.A. cops that seemingly are more protective of the local business. Uh, it's like uh, you don't pester the local businessmen of Los Angeles. You don't uh, destroy property. Those That's more important. Yeah, and they found the, they found the, like, the whitest, most yeah. California surfer type cops <laughs> they could find. So he gets thrown out of the window and the cops are like, you're under arrest. And he's like, forget thrown out of a window? You always treat visitors from out of town like this? You know, it's interesting. All these fish out of water movies. Uh, there's a New York cop in L.A. with Die Hard. There's a Detroit cop in Beverly Hills from Beverly Hills Cop. Where's the Philly uh, cop in L.A.? Where's that movie? That I think that's going to be uh, I think that was the, a lost opportunity. Folks, this podcast has been put on pause to go write the next <laughs> big blockbuster hit. All right. So he gets to the police station and he learns a couple of things. He learns that this is quite a different police station. In fact, he indicates that when he gets into the police car he's like man this is the nicest police car i've ever been in it it's nicer than my apartment there's a phone in the in the jail cell itself uh, and then he goes upstairs and he meets taggart and rosewood for the first time roseweed roseburn <laughs> rosebob like i love how he gets his name butchered by every uh, everybody in charge he learns a couple things he learns that taggart's kind of the real deal he's not going to take any shit uh, but he's also by the book and we also learn ronnie cox's character lieutenant bogomil is just a very straight shooter 
you know, Ronnie Cox's prior roles to this were all basically he was more soft spoken. He was like just a milk toast. And in this role, it was his launching pad into the other roles where he played more of the just soulless corporate type that he portrayed in Robocop and in Total Recall. So he meets these guys and he then peters off and they're told to go follow him. Uh, and he checks into the Beverly Wilshire Hotel um, and he secures his room by flipping out very loudly <laughs> and accusing the desk clerk of. Uh, or the ho- hotel chain itself of, of being racist. Uh, oddly enough, that hotel chain is b- currently being boycotted because it's owned by a group of people who uh, deny homosexuality. Interesting. Nobody stays there. Uh, excuse me, sir. It seems that we do have a, a last-minute cancellation. Yeah, he's wily. He's street smart, which is also the same thing with John McClane. So it's, you get these uh, just Northeast cops just coming in, breaking all the rules. Everyone's by the book in Beverly Hills. By the way, I also wanted to back up a little bit about another interesting thing about this. As we know from Die Hard, John McClane arrives by plane. But we are led to believe that after Mikey's death, Axel has gotten into his car and it looks as though he's driven all the way across country. I mean, we're led to believe that. It also looks like he kind of showed up the next day. I mean, you know, out of nowhere. You know the movie I want to see? I want to see the movie where he takes that drop. I want to see the stops along the way. Did he stop to see the world's largest bale of twine? Did he stop at the Coors Brewery in Golden, Colorado? I mean, there's some nice establishments in Iowa. Maybe he drove through Nebraska. I want to see Axel in those places. Where's that story? The distance from Detroit, Michigan, again to Beverly Hills, uh, California. It's 2,297 miles and would take you 34 hours straight through. So we can assume that this fantastical voyage that you speculating about did in fact happen. (laughs) Eddie Murphy, if you're listening, please contact us immediately and we can can write that movie. Okay. I got to touch on a line real quick. Going back to the fact that, you know, the script was just finished when they started filming and that they had to backfill a lot of scenes with uh, improvisation. The scene where uh, Eddie Murphy and Ronnie Cox are just doing that. He's like, yeah, I'm on vacation. Yeah, I'm on vacation. And then the third time, they just both shout it together. On vacation! Now, one last time, what are you doing? I'm on vacation! Vacation. <laughs> that, that was movie magic right there. But as we know, Axel Foley's vacation has... It's duplicitous because he's not really on vacation. And he gives plenty of reasons to be on vacation. I mean, there's for two other more, two more sequels, he found a reason to be on vacation in Beverly Hills. Almost uh, hard to figure out how that, how that would happen. So other, you know, actors who got to do a lot of improvisation were the, you know, Taggart and Rosewood characters. Detective Billy Rosewood played by Judge Reinhold of Fast Times at Ridgemont High fame and Sergeant Taggart played by John Ashton. So these guys purportedly got cast together because during the auditions they were they kept pairing up different actors and they were like hey just pretend that you're an old married couple and the line where you know you it says know here that by the that time, by the, time old, the, average the average american, american is 50 over, was it 50 pounds he's got five pounds, five pounds of, undigested of undigested red meat, red meat in, his bowels. <laughs> in their bowels like that that part was Why completely improvised and they immediately got what you think i have any interest in that at all old married couple just throughout the film judge reinhold's more well you eat a lot of red meat doing spouse to uh, John Ashton's basically like emotionally cut off. Why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me this? What makes you think I would possibly be interested in any of this? (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah and uh, the director talked about how he saw those two as kind of like Laurel and Hardy and there definitely is some slapstick you know they definitely have moments where they could have found a way around a wall towards the climax there was a wall that they had to scale apparently according to Taggart he had to just do some slapstickery as he it was basically straight out of Three Stooges uh, and then he climbs on top of Rosemont Roseweed Rosemont Wood 
Well, we, we're allowed to jump around. That's just the way this works. Just the gentleman who ruined the buffet at the Harrow Club this morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of love that scene where he breaks down all the things that are they're very much uh, crimes and misdemeanors in the eyes of the Beverly Hills cop or Beverly Hills police station. Yes, sir. Is this a gentleman who crashed through Victor Maitland's window? Who disabled a non-mark unit with a banana? Yes, sir. Who lured Taggett and Rosemont into a gross dereliction of duty at a striptease establishment? His list culminates of all these things that, like destroying property, uh, his list culminates with destroying the buffet table at the Harrow Club, which means it must be like the highest infraction. But that's also the moment that Ronnie Cox goes from, you know, and we also, we like to talk about characters being genuine. Genuine characters are the best characters. You know, we talked about Argyle in Die Hard and just a lot of characters that are written genuinely and are performed genuinely. Like Ronnie Cox's character arc was the same, but he just went from not accepting Axel Foley to accepting Axel Foley as a serious detective. And it was summed up after that scene because they get back to the police station and there's a single line, which is, hey, you know, forget what you can Forget what you can prove. Talk to me. (laughs) Talk to me. He wants the story. He now trusts this guy. He trusts him as a, both a serious detective, you know, a little bit of a troublemaker, but smart, a guy who understands that there's potentially a real crime here. And that's when Lieutenant Bogomil becomes an Axel Foley fan. Yeah, he actually backs him up at the end. He goes all the way to saving his life. It's like the one guy, the one lone uh, hero at the end facing down the bad guy. This was interesting wherein it was like a co-shooting. Bogomil and... They both shoot him. Lieutenant Bogomil and Axel Foley. You're right. They both pull out their guns and make mincemeat. And this is a great segue into bad guys because they make mincemeat of one of the best filmed bad guys ever. Victor Maitland. He's just like, he, he's perpetually in a plain gray kimono. <laughs> and he's just like this, this cut off, very serious. He looks perpetually, you know, angry and dangerous. And just, he looks like a psychotic person, but just like your buttoned up business type. He's a really good bad guy. Oh, from under what stone you crawl. Or where you get these ridiculous ideas about me. But it seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest fucking idea who you're dealing with. And he's followed around um, by Zach, played by Jonathan Banks, who, if you asked me before we recorded this, I would have sworn that that was actually Sylvester Stallone's brother, who I know plays bad guys in movies. And I just had the two guys confused. But Zach, played by Jack Russo, is a very effective, like, muscle. Like, he is like, oh, did you teach him that trick? Did you teach him to roll over to when he gets thrown over the buffet table after Eddie Murphy, you know, realizes that he's not going to take any more of this guy's crap so you have two great bad guys victor maitland um played by stephen burkoff who was in hang on what was he what was his claim to fame he was in some he was in clockwork orange of course oh, yeah. um, and he was also in octopussy uh, which is a great movie and he got cast in beverly hills cop because of his role in octopus he's a great actor and he's so evil he's so evil as bad guy victor Foley. maitland that he reads Since through such a good friend of mine, art catalog as he's interrogating which, how evil can you get He's almost bored by how much he's putting her on the spot. He wants to just leaf through what he's supposed to be doing. That was a scene about subtext too, because if you look at, and that, that was that was very fine acting, because if you look at the ability for them to convey what they're thinking versus what they are doing, you know, because he's reading the catalog, but he's also giving her a look like, you, you know that I know that you know. <laughs> um, and she's also giving straight responses, but her facial expressions, the micro expressions are very fearful and betraying. Um, so it's an excellent scene. 
And I think both of those actors did a wonderful job there for his believability. If you look at the, uh, so the murder is one thing, but if you look at the crime itself that Victor Maitland's um, committing, and if you look at Axel Foley's investigation of it, it's really not that complex. It basically boils down to him going to the warehouse multiple times, <laughs> finding out that they're shipping drugs <laughs> with yeah. It's like, that's it. Like, there's no other levels of investigations. He just has, he found a box and he found some manifests and that was it. That was the whole of the crime. Yeah. And that's the same. 80s movies. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it also encouraged me a little because like, you know, I wrote a, a spec for one hour cable crime comedy caper. And it was like, I had, I had this complex crime and I'm like, once I, once I watched this, I was like, you don't even need the crime. <laughs> the audience isn't going to hold you accountable yeah. to that. It's not like Inception where you're like, yeah, this is onion level 12 bullshit um it was just a simple crime yeah 80s 80s uh what happened to the villains who were uh art dealers and uh smugglers and uh the barabans and you know those those are of the past i guess we don't really have those kinds of villains anymore the universal bad guy mm -hmm. is definitely a white male corporate guy that's like the one universal bad guy that's still accepted speaking of corporate bad guys who came up with the concept of this movie uh and they came up with the concept of this movie because they were driving around beverly hills in a shitty station wagon and then it caused this person to go out and immediately buy a fancy new Mercedes the next day. But they they had the original concept for the idea and then, then they enlisted a screenwriter to yeah. begin to stub it out. Who was that? Was it one of the producers? Very successful uh, industry person who's had quite a career. I, I'm stumped again. So that would be Michael Eisner. Oh yeah, Michael Eisner, of course. How could I forget him? CEO of Disney, yeah. the Walt Disney <laughs> Company. Uh, but then prior to that was president of Paramount Pictures. That's also another similarity between... Uh, Brian Stump in LA, fish out of water. I mean, you were also the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Yes, I am. I, I didn't. I thought you knew that. I think Bob Chapek would take uh, umbrage to this. <laughs> it's just a, it's a side hustle. Yeah, I arrived as I said in uh, yeah a very shabby car. And well, what kind of car are we talking about here? I mean, you've mentioned this several times. It was like a four cylinder. Uh, you don't know the year, make, and model of the vehicle that you drove. No, I don't. I don't know any of that. I mean, I, I was uh, young to the car culture of LA. I soon uh, I soon got coached up. I think a little bit by uh, Joe Friend. You seem to be a Mazda Miata man. <laughs> I came in a Miata man and left a BMW man, I guess. <laughs> I bought, at some point, uh, soon after I had probably a similar situation as uh, a young Mr. Eisner, I also decided I had to get something else to uh, for my wheels. Jenny mocks Axel for, has he ever driven a Mercedes before? Twice. Is this your car? Oh no, in Beverly Hills, we just take whichever car's closest. And then she doesn't want him to drive because like, have you ever driven a Mercedes before? <laughs> and you know, I have, and they're not any different from driving my first car, which was a 1988 Nissan 200SX, Brian. So it baffles, it, it befuddles me that you don't know what car that you drove out here in. And I'm, I'm asking you to please schedule an appointment with a neurologist. Is that the so, same car that I put bananas in the tailpipe though? Go ahead, take this banana. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. <laughs> so the car gags are funny in this movie. That was Damon Wayans' first movie. He went on to do Living Color as well as many other hilarious movies. That scene was also improvised. Uh, they were going to have it in another, in a kitchen location, but they didn't have any location to get. So they were just like, all right, we're just going to restage the lobby with a little food buffet. And the whole take the bananas thing was just written there. And the all spot. the things that stick in the tailpipe, I mean, it just makes sense. What else uh, can we talk about? The uh, striptease established. It's a good scene. Awesome scene. It has Prince. It has uh, Taggart. Prince. Oh, he's not in it. Wrote the song <laughs> vanity six performed the song but their backing band was the time <laughs> the 
Revolution's purple rain. It's actually a moment where the fish out of water takes two guys and puts them as fish out of water. I mean, you get the impression Taggart and Rosemont have, or sorry, Rosewood, <laughs> have not really uh, frequented that kind of establishment. The inspector, the, the police chief of Burley Hills, accuses uh, Axel of luring them to this strip club at the very end. Um, you know, that's how it ends is like, uh, where are we going now to get a drink? <laughs> I love that scene because it accomplishes a couple of things. One, let me know that in my younger days when I was broke, that strip clubs are a very <laughs> lucrative place to get quick money from. Not as a worker, but if you- Not you as know. a worker. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying if, that. If you need to come in in a trench coat and a sawed-off shotgun, nobody looks at you twice, except for Axel Foley. <laughs> It's the scene where uh, Axel Foley earns the trust of mm -hmm. Taggart and Rosewood. It also enables the one of the best speeches in the entire movie, one of the best scenes in the entire movie, which is the whole super cop. <laughs> These guys were super cops. And it's rumored that that entire speech was improvised um, and that Eddie Murphy, who is known for, you know, not imbibing uh, any illicit substances, uh, was given a cup of coffee because he was tired on the set and that energized them. And that whole super cop scene was a product of that. So I, I, I love that speech. They're not just regular cops, okay? They're super cops. Uh, and I love that whole <laughs> disarming of the bad guys and then earning the adoration of the entire uh, audience uh, within the strip club itself. <laughs> but yes. we haven't we haven't done uh, our log lines, Brian. So if you were <laughs> to give Beverly Hills Cop a log This will be off the cuff the because... I am, as usual, I am unprepared for any of this banter. But, uh, I'm surprising you. But logline, I would say, well, we got to do the fish out of water and uh, make a connection to Glengarry, Glen Ross. Jesus, somehow Jesus. With you. <laughs> not not a, not a, even a hint of Passion of the Christ in this one. But Glengarry, Glen Ross, obviously, with a dash of uh, Rocky, maybe with Apollo Creed. I don't know, but um, that's that's the best I can do at, uh, off the cuff. I mean, Brian, were you were you dropped on your head at birth? Can you explain the Glengarry, Glen Ross, and slash? Rocky reference here. Everyone's trying to aspire that even before the Glenary Glen Ross even came out, everyone's aspiring for that kind of writing and that kind of manly uh, macho banter. 80s was full of it. But that's Glengarry Glen Ross's closed environment movie. Like he, that's like uh, Hateful Eight and just you know any movie that's set with the same scene the whole time. More of a play, really. Everyone tries to have a character like Alec Baldwin. Yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> I'm not accepting your your log line. Right. Well, I'm, I refuse to accept yours. Go ahead, proceed. <laughs> even before. I said it. So Eddie Murphy was in his, I think he was 24 when they filmed this. Just He was in his early 20s or mid-20s. So let's say young rough around the edges detective must avenge the death of his best friend. Pass. I don't know. Yeah, we're going to pass on that one. All right. So we don't have log lines for this movie, which is a shame. But did you know, Brian, that this was, again, I said this was the number one box office of the year and then you wrongly and rudely interrupted me with an inaccuracy. <laughs> Repeat it, and I won't interrupt this time. It was the first of seven of his movies, um, but it was also the highest grossing R-rated film until which movie toppled it? I don't know. As you're aware, they do not like to release blockbusters as R-rated movies because it limits their ability to earn money from these movies, but it was The Matrix Reloaded. Reloaded, not the first Matrix? It was The Matrix Reloaded in 2003 that toppled this, and I don't think The Matrix was R-rated. Well, the first one, you're right. You're right, PG-13. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back and I'm trying to think about any scene. No, that was rated R. The first Matrix? Yeah. Yeah, and also I want to talk about the director, Martin Brest. I mean, interestingly, interesting look to look at his filmography because really not a ton of input from this, or output from this guy. Really only about eight 
studio films came out of Martin Brest. Unfortunately, ending with the movie Gigli, which probably is the reason why we haven't seen much more uh, from him. Was that J-Lo? Yeah, J-Lo and Ben Affleck. I mean, how could you go wrong with those two uh, Those two staring your phone? But yeah, I mean, uh, obviously a uh, well-known box office bomb, Gigli. Well, he did do some good movies. I mean, The Midnight Run, obviously one of his films. I love that movie. He, who was uh, originally the director of War Games. Things didn't go quite right there, but uh, he got off this role as director. He didn't quite uh, latch onto it at first, though. He didn't think he was uh, right for the material. It had a lot more action. And as the lore goes, uh, what happened was he decided to just flip a coin. Just flip a coin to decide whether to direct it or not. Came up heads means he's going to direct it. I think, he, uh, according to uh, the rumors, he still has that quarter to this day, deciding that that was, you know, kind of sealing his fate for, uh, you know, for a short duration as one of the uh, premier directors. I don't think he should tell that story because it just reeks some entitlement. Like, oh, I just decided to flip a coin after somebody ruined the buffet. Ruined the buffet. Uh, Midnight Run, awesome movie. Scent of a Woman, awesome movie. Meet Joe Black. Uh, people say it's good. I've actually never seen it. S- seems like he's he's done some good movies. Prior to that, uh, yeah, I think he did an episode of Saturday Night Live as well, which probably uh, connected him and Eddie Murphy together. Okay, screenwriter. Yeah, and screenwriters uh, Daniel Petrie, he really also uh, did not go on to much fame and fortune. Again, it's kind of like that mystery of who was the one that actually wrote most of the dialogue, the improvising and all that. I think he uh, definitely deserves credit for assembling together the basic blueprint for Beverly Hills Cop. But after that, variations of his characters being used in Beverly Hills Cop sequels and Turner and Hooch. He did Turner and Hooch. He did Toy Soldiers, which is actually a pretty good movie. I mean, it's not my jam, but as far as like the total package of it, it was well written, well, I guess, acted and it's just well done. Was it in the army now? Was that Pauly Shore? Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, we can just discard that. But but then the TV series, The Big Easy, which I have never seen either. So I don't know about that. Coming back full circle to how this might be a film that was all because of the star Eddie Murphy. Yeah, that's true. You know, we get to the movie, we get where the crime is investigated. And, you know, Jenny for sure wants to come along with uh, Axel Foley and Rosewood, who's supposed to be escorting him out of town at the moment because he's he's worn out his welcome uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, was it Chief Inspector Hubbard? So he has to leave. Uh, instead, he convinces is Rosewood to take them back to the warehouse. He and Jenny, Axel Foley and Jenny enter the warehouse. Um, Judge Reinhold chooses not to enter because he doesn't want to commit yet another crime. Axel and Jenny proceed to get caught and Axel gets gets to stay behind at the warehouse and get interrogated there. Meanwhile, Victor Maitland makes it off with Jenny back to his mansion and this enables Rosewood to make a decision. He's going to jump in here and help out. Axel gets freed and then he and Rosewood head over to Victor Maitland's mansion where they meet up with Sergeant Taggart, who's dubious. <laughs> Brian, I believe one of your favorite scenes happened. Some of the best emoting from a car by Judge Reinhold. Several scenes of him just like, oh, geez, ah, oh, what the, ah. Uh. Ah, what the? And so that's uh, something that I learned uh, when I directed my first short film. Is it's it's great to have a not, a lot of B roll of just one character just kind of going through all the different spectrum of emotions. So I think that's what they did for Judge Reinhold in that moment. Be very worried. Be even more worried. Be scared. Be inquisitive. And then he goes into the warehouse, and uh, and this goes leads us up to the ending where it's a, it's something that he always wants to do. He wants to give the bad guys an opportunity to freeze, and he wants to show us badge, and he does that but he actually gets a few rounds off so good on good on Judd Reinhold I think that also cements the development of his character in the remaining of the series 
Hayes as this gunslinger because he just has he ends up having a, a severe gun habit that both uh, Taggart and Axel Foley continually comment on throughout the remainder of the series. He does that also at the mansion. So we get to the mansion. Uh, we've seen how Taggart and Rosewood are just trying to get over the over the wall. It's just very slapsticky. It's a little more hearty, a little Three Stooges, and eventually they find a way to get access to the uh, bad guys. And again, getting back to the mayhem and wanton destruction. I mean, they're just they're just out there. They wouldn't machine guns, just tearing this place apart. I mean, you're seeing this marble. I mean, imagine the mortar guy who has to come in and fill in all these holes. I think even a priceless painting gets a, a shotgun blast through it. Oh, it's terrible to watch. Everyone's trying to shoot their machine gun. Rosewood is like, I need to reinforce that I'm a cop first, and I'm going to I'm going to make sure that I say freeze or say put the gun down. Yeah, he's doing that. And Taggart is pissed. What did Taggart say at that moment? <laughs> Will you stop doing that? <laughs> Wait, you're all under arrest. You do that again. I'll shoot you myself. Intriguingly, uh, Taggart, uh, he brings a, a shotgun to the gunfight and he rarely uses it. I think he just kind of keeps on finding his pistol to make his little pop-off shot. Speaking of screenplay, I mean, at this moment in the screenplay, what what is it? A few pages of pew, pew, pew? When I wrote the screenplay for The Robot War, I had to figure that out. You know, <laughs> how do you do an action sequence? And I think it's just that. It's a sequence of description. Yeah. It is single line descriptions, but it is a funny trope. Beverly Hills Cop and all the other 80s movies of of the prevalence of uh, small machine guns uh, in the hands of hired bad guys. And you figure like, what's the job description here for these just random bad guys who are basically there to take a bullet from our heroes? Are these security people? Are these mercenaries? You know, are they part of a mafia organization that trains in small arms fire? Like, I, I don't, what is yeah, that? He's an, he's an art <laughs> dealer. So how, do, how does he have like these recruits from Beirut all of a sudden? What is it with Beverly Hills? I mean, this goes on for a little bit. I don't know if the neighbors are hearing much of it. Maybe they're being respectful. The cops come eventually. I think, there, I think they did mention there was reports of Sir, we have a report of shots fired at the same location. <laughs> Going back to the police station, the juxtaposition between the Beverly, the, the Detroit police station and the Beverly Hills cop police station, the set designer used uh, leftover props that were not used in the movie War Games to make the quote-unquote Beverly Hills cop police station look like this clean, advanced, high-tech place against the dilapidated uh, Detroit <laughs> police station. I can attest to the fact that the location of Victor Maitland's mansion, you might not be too quick to pick up on small arms fire due to one of two things. One is pretty secluded on their those estate properties up in the hills and there's all these nooks and crannies. Uh, and two, there's always a lot of filming going on, period, which makes rack. Another quintessential uh, Beverly Hills LA moment where it's not only about the car culture, but in the midst of this shootout, Rosewood's like, hey, Taggart, it's just like the ending of Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a movie reference uh, because they're in movie land. Yeah, but the reason the reason Taggart's so mortified by that is because at the end of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, spoiler alert, if you've never seen this movie, cover your ears, both of the main characters get killed. So that's why Taggart's like, dude, <laughs> no, not, not cool, man. But I think that would be you in the middle of a, a gunfight with me. You'd be like, uh, give me a little bit of trivia along the way. Did you know, or can you guess, can I stump the stump here? Like Joe, Joe Friend. Yeah, I think in this movie, if we had to break down, like uh, considering you and me and our roles in this kind of film, I think it would have to be, I would have to be the Eddie Murphy character where you're more of the Serge character. No, no. You're, <laughs> I'm the you're guy more... from the Rust Belt. 
I think this is, uh, again, going back to other movies that we've seen, it's showing this kind of divide between the glamour of L.A. and kind of the Rust Belt. And Eddie Murphy does represent the Rust Belt. He's kind of always mentioning, uh, making little mentions of Buffalo. He's like, at the very beginning, he's like, oh, that's not me. I'm from Buffalo. And then he's like, listen to me. I do security checks all over the nation. And with the exception of Cleveland, this place has the worst security in the nation. (laughs) So he's always kind of, he's clearly of the Rust Belt era or Rust Belt uh, territory of the decaying economy of that America, but kind of juxtaposed next to the glitz, glamour, and success that's going on. Okay, so that's that's why you're the Eddie Murphy character because you and he. <laughs> yeah, I represent that. First of all, him representing the inner city of Detroit, contrasted <laughs> against the coddled, idyllic pastoral farmland <laughs> that you grew up on, churning apple butter uh, every fall. <laughs> You don't churn apple butter. Oh, I gave it away. It's selling pumpkins. <laughs> I lived in yeah. Michigan. Let, let's. Oh, what for? Like a millisecond? You're suburbanite farmer. Maybe not even suburbanite. You're just rural. <laughs> suburbanite. So I'm the only one who grew up in the city. So me and oh, Eddie Murphy are basically the same person in this movie. Too smart for their own good. Naturally good at whatever they do. Both, you know, fish own. out of water. You know, I moved from the, the mean streets of Philadelphia to Los Angeles. The glitz and glamour, sorry, of Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> you're more of a rose. You're more of a you're more of a taggart, in my opinion. You know, <laughs> yeah. just grumpy, slightly overweight. All right, no more analysis. Doesn't have to take care of himself. And all these, I mean, you're clearly the rosewood. So basically, the, the, since we covered the ending at the beginning, we don't need to cover it here. But just Beverly Hills Cop, just from beginning to end, perfectly written, perfectly acted. The only goof in the movie is that co- cocaine sniffing dogs can tell the difference between coffee and cocaine. By the way, so <laughs> don't try it if you're uh, into that sort of thing. Make sure that's not how you ship your cocaine no (laughs) i really can't end on the cocaine though can i cocaine (laughs) it was the 80s man you don't know beverly hills cop definitely one of the movies in our series of 80s action flicks as a must-see movie and i would put it as a a must-see movie against many other movies definitely one of my top 20 and mine as well this is a great movie one of those movies where it takes you back to one of the better soundtracks of the 80s one of the breakout roles for one of the stars that we still have today along with bill murray various people that came out of saturday night live i just want to say that it's just just uh, one of those movies where you can always uh, think back when, as soon as you hear the music, as soon as you hear Axel left, you just think to yourself, oh yeah, he is on. I've seen this movie about a thousand times, mainly because as you indicated back to it being in our younger days, this was one of the films that we owned on a VCR cassette tape prior to the establishment of West Coast videos and blockbuster videos. You'd had to own your movies. Um, and this was one of the ones that we owned. So I got to watch it over and over and over again, basically every Every sick day was either a combination of Beverly Hills Cop, Terminator, and Ghostbusters. But one of my treasured memories of childhood is watching Eddie Murphy swinging around the back of a 18-wheeler uh, precariously through Detroit to the Pointer Sister song, Neutron Dance. Go see this movie. We wouldn't do a podcast on a movie we don't want you to see. Uh, and join us next time where Brian will hopefully wear a shirt while we're filming. It's only appropriate to go without. Is that uh, apple butter you're spreading on yourself? So if you don't churn apple butter, what do you do to it? Family secret. Have you have you made apple butter? Never.
Hey, Joe, might you be able to recommend any graphic novels? Funny you should ask. The Robot War, a limited series, sci-fi action comedy, graphic novel, written by yours truly. Santa Barbara is under siege by a robot army in a devastating attack. A ragtag group of video game designers, led by a cocky wise-ass, battle across town to rescue his girlfriend and a school full of trapped children. You can get The Robot War on Amazon or through Comixology. That's The Robot War by Joe Friend. Think you're brave enough to read what industry insiders are calling one of the most terrifying screenplays they've ever read? The Making of Merciless by Brian Stumpf in paperback is just $9.99 on Amazon. Simply use the search terms Making Stumpf Merciless. This twisty, clever, award-winning, five-star rated horror about a film crew in the deep woods awakening a demon is flying off the shelves at Amazon.